0: I invite your uh, reverent attention to the Word of God as found in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and uh, following on to chapter 7 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Hear the Word of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his time, Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms, and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, breadth 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top, and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under the heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons, and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind, and of the animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you... Take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and that it shall be for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, this morning we're going to continue to look at God's unfolding plan of redemption in its earlier stages. We began that last week as we looked at Genesis chapters 4 and 5. Uh, The outworking of this plan began in Genesis Genesis 3.15 and the first announcement of the gospel. The good news that the Lord God would put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and her offspring. And even though there was the Lord's corresponding pronouncements of consequences of their sin upon Adam and Eve and mankind and earth, namely pain and toil, thorns and thistles, and ultimately death and return to dust, Adam and Eve believed the Lord's promise of one to come who would crush the head of the serpent and destroy both him and his works. We see their faith in Genesis chapter 3 verse 20 when the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. He believed the promise and the future hope. Uh, Though he could not see it at that point. And that's the essence of faith, isn't it? Um, Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 to 2 tell us that now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, we read, read <clears throat> the people of old receive their commendation. We know Adam and Eve were accepted by the Lord by faith because upon the statement of that faith, the Lord provided them with garments of skins from sacrificial animals to cover their bodies and their shame. Well, the plan of redemption continues into Genesis chapter 4 and 5 with the chronicles of the enmity between the line of Adam through Cain and uh, the murderer the one who was of the evil one and who went away from the presence of the Lord. In contrast to the line of Adam through Seth, whom God appointed as the faithful successor to the slain Abel and who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And as we learned last week, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Cain's line is characterized by the anger and murder found in Cain and extending down to the ungodly man named Limech. He's the one that took two wives and then celebrated his strength to kill any who might injure him. And in contrast to Cain and his line, there is a godly line that shines forth from Seth. His descendants are characterized by a sense of weakness. So Seth names his son Enosh, which means weakness. And they're characterized by prayer and walking in the fellowship of the Lord and longing for the promised rest from the curse of work and the toil in a fallen world. The godly limbic in the line of Seth, expresses this longing and hope when he named his son Noah. A name that means rest. He says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, if you could go back in time to the days before the flood... And ask someone from outside of Noah's family and the godly line of Seth, how are things going for you? I think they would say something like this Look around our great city. Look at our agricultural markets. Look at our accomplishments in the arts and the science. All of that's said of the line of Cain, you would say, we're doing fine. Life is good. There will be a wedding tonight, in fact, and afterwards, they'll be eating and drinking. That's how Jesus described those days in Matthew 24, verses 38, saying, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Until the day that Noah entered the ark. Of course, that's not the whole story of what life is like for them. If you probed further, I think they would have admitted to you that life is hard. Marriages are on the rocks, there's strife between parents and children. Work seems utterly frustrating, and rulers are more like tyrants than benevolent kings. And on top of that, oh, the stories I could tell you about corruption and violence that surrounds us. Yeah, we uh, enjoy a few things in life, but they're only passing pleasures, and they're just diversions from the pain and toil of life. That's life under the sun that everyone uh, endures and lives in. Well, that's the setting of our text this morning. Widespread ungodliness, corruption, and violence that grieve the Lord and set the stage for worldwide judgment. Or rather, nearly worldwide judgment. Because we read in Genesis 6, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As God had determined to judge the world and make an end to all flesh because of the violence and corruption that filled the earth, God also determined to save the world for the sake of and through one man. And not just for the sake of the man Noah, again, for the sake of the future of mankind and for the sake of, of the Lord's own name and his promise that he made to Adam and Eve that there would come from the offspring of the woman, one who would crush the serpent. So his reputation is on the line. So with that introduction, I'd like to think with you about some lessons from the life of Noah in our passage this morning. And the first lesson is, actually from the verse that precedes it, Genesis 6, verse 8, the lesson of God's favor. If we were putting together a lexicon of important words uh, and phrases related to the plan of redemption, (coughs) this is one we would want to add to that lexicon, the word favor. We would add to it the other important words of redemption and phrases that we have seen in the first five chapters of Genesis, Phrases like, have regard for. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. That's Genesis 4, verse 4. The phrase, call upon the name of the Lord. At that time of Seth and Enosh, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's Genesis 4, verse 26. And walk with God. Now there's a phrase. Enoch walked with God. That's Genesis 5, verse 24. And the word rest. Lamech called his son Noah, saying out of the ground that the Lord is cursed. This one shall bring us rest or relief or some translations comfort. Genesis 5, verse 29. Favor and finding favor with God are right up there. (laughs) The important words in the lexicon of the plan of redemption. And so we have the word and the phrase, but what does it mean? What is the significance of finding favor with God? Well, consider uh, in the passage this morning, what is the significance of finding favor with God for Noah? The significance is that he will escape the coming judgment. And not only him, but his wife and his children and their wives. So was finding favor with God significant for Noah? It absolutely was significant. It was life-saving. God's favor meant that he and his family had a future, and through them, mankind and the animal kingdom also had a future. So, how did the Lord show his favor to Noah? Again, we go to the text to find the answers. First, we see the Lord's favor in Revelation. The Lord revealed to Noah his divine plan of judgment, and he told him to build an ark that would be the means of salvation from the flood. He gave Noah the blueprints for the ark, including the type of wood to use, uh, how to make it watertight. And then the Lord showed patience and gave Noah time to build the ark and to receive the animals into it. And then the Lord sealed his favor and planned to save Noah and his family by establishing an irrevocable covenant with him. So what amazing... Favor Noah found in the eyes of the Lord. And that's your first lesson about favor. The lesson of God's favor displayed by the Lord intervening into your circumstances, even the most difficult of circumstances, and providing a way forward and out of those circumstances. So think of favor as divine help in the midst of your Circumstances. We have an example of that in Genesis chapter 39, uh, specifically verses uh, 20 to 21. This is when Joseph was in prison. And it says Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him, here's our word, favor in the sight of the keeper of the jail. So here we see the Lord giving favor to Joseph by stirring the heart of the jailer to act in a way that will benefit Joseph. See, Joseph had no power, really, to influence the jailer on his behalf. But the Lord, who turns the hearts of kings like He can turn the strings of water. He can turn the heart of a jailer however he pleases. We learn something more about the uh, uh, aspect of God's favor, that it comes from the wellspring of his love. His love leads to him showing favor to his beloved people. We read this in Exodus chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. The Lord said to Moses, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people, speaking of the Hebrews, and here's our word, favor. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians And when you go, you shall not go empty. Because the Lord intervened in their circumstances. When they left Egypt, the Lord had stirred the hearts of the Egyptians to empty their bank accounts for them. That's the Lord's doing. Here, as the Lord turned the heart of a jailer, He turns the heart of an entire nation for His people. And why did He do this for the poor Hebrews? The answer is, because he loved them. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord says to the prophet, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 to 8, again, the Lord declares through Moses, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. Why is it then? Verse 8. But it's because the Lord loves you. And so favor with God is not earned, it is not merited. It's important to remember as we work through our text this morning, it is a gift of God. God gives favor. We merely find it. But as His people, we can pray for it. We can pray and ask God for favor in our circumstances. You have an example of this in uh, the life of Nehemiah. You'll see this in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. You know, the precursor to this is Nehemiah receives word about the state of Jerusalem. It's in ruins. And it troubles him to the depths of his soul. And he mourns over uh, Jerusalem and his people. But it was private mourning, okay? Nehemiah chapter two says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I, this is Nehemiah speaking, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? Seeing you're not sick, This is nothing but sadness of the heart. What a perceptive king. And Nehemiah says, then I was very afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? It's just a declaration of why he's sad. The king then says to Nehemiah, what are you requesting? What are you asking for? And then we read, Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's, That I may rebuild it. Then, if you go down to the end of verse eight, it says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So, Nehemiah was given the opportunity to make a very bold request of a foreign king. And before he answered, Nehemiah prayed. I think we can guess what he prayed for by what he received from the king. The king showed him favor. And I believe that's exactly what Noah asked of the Lord. Oh, Father, give me favor as I make this request to the king. You know, I often find myself in um, circumstances particularly uh, in the business uh, that I run and work at, there are often outcomes of certain issues that are in, seemingly in the hands of others. Other companies we do business with, um, uh, and more than that. And I often ask the Lord to intervene on my behalf and give me favor with those other people or companies that I might find a way forward through difficult circumstances and issues of business. Okay, so now we've thought about uh, the Lord's favor and praying for the Lord's favor. I hope you will take that away today and remember in your prayers in the difficult times, uh, ask God to intervene for you, particularly if you need favor with someone With whom you're dealing. Well, we're not done yet with um, lessons about uh, finding favor with the Lord because we need to ask an important question about favor. And here's the question Who finds this kind of favor in the eyes of the Lord? The answer is simple the righteous find favor with God. This is from Psalm 5, verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as a shield. And we will see the favor of the Lord upon a righteous man, Noah. Well, think of the unfolding story of the flood as a book or one of those old uh, TV serial series It always ends on a cliffhanger, okay? That's how the story goes. Uh, Genesis 4 and 5 tell the story of two lines, one showing strength and ingenuity, but also violence and ungodliness. The other line showing weakness, but also faith and godliness. The first line, wandering from God. The second line, walking with God. And as the story of these two lines moves into chapter 6, there's, increasing violence and corruption. And the narrator reveals that God is determined to blot out man from the face of the earth. And just as the scene's about to go dark, the narrator says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And there's your cliffhanger. What will happen next? With the beginning of the next episode, the narrator opens with these words, Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation noah walked with god and so begins the next part of the storyline but the two storylines are connected and you don't want to miss the connection where the one story ends the other story begins and the story of noah finding favor in the eyes of the lord begins with a statement about the man he was righteous and blameless in his generation, in contrast to the widespread and increasing wickedness of men in his days. Well, before going uh, further and thinking about righteous, um, just remember when you, uh, in your own studies, um, you come to a word like righteous or righteousness in the Bible, the text will take you in one of two directions, okay? in terms of uh, the meaning. It will either be a text primarily about righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord, or a text primarily about a righteousness displayed in character and conduct. The two lines of thought are inseparably linked together, okay? because the righteous by faith will live a righteous life. And living a righteous life springs from the faith that is counted as righteous before the Lord. But again, as you study a passage, you want to let the text guide you as to whether it is addressing righteousness by faith or righteousness in conduct. As for Genesis 6, verse 9, I believe it is talking about Noah's righteous character and his conduct. The reason for this is that Genesis 6 is the story of knowing, doing all that the Lord commanded him. And then when we read in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. I equate this verse with a parallel story in the life of Abraham. In Genesis uh, 15, the Lord made a grand promise to Abraham of an heir and an offspring that could be compared to the number of the stars of the sky. Well, Abraham had no offspring at that time. But Genesis 15, verse 6 says, Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted his faith to him as righteousness. Okay, that is the righteousness of God that comes through faith, not through doing. Okay. Genesis 15, verse 6. But later in Genesis 22, the Lord tells Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac. And Abraham does all that the Lord commands to the point of binding Isaac on the altar and raising the knife. But the angel of the Lord intervenes and says to Abraham, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So do you see the flow of righteousness there? First, there is a righteousness that is credited to Abraham's account because of his faith and believing what the Lord had said, though he had not seen anything, yet of the promise fulfilled. And then we see a righteousness in conduct that springs out of that faith and conduct that is approved by the Lord. I think the same is true of Noah He had a righteousness that comes from faith and a righteousness of character and conduct. Well, what did Noah believe that was counted to him as righteousness? He believed God's warnings of judgment and his promise of salvation as recorded in Genesis 6. The New Testament confirms this for us. It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, By faith... Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his house. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Okay, It's not in the text of Genesis 6, but it's undergirding it all. Okay, The righteousness that comes by faith, by which we are reconciled to God. Okay? And we stand in grace with him. That's all from Romans 5. Okay, so now we're ready to think about righteousness, that is, righteous conduct. And also what it means to be blameless. Again, these are new words that are unfolding for us in the Genesis account, and they're worthy to be added to our lexicon of God's plan of redemption. So if we think about righteous conduct, and we ask the question, what do righteous people do? How do they show their righteousness? Well, they show it primarily through self-sacrifice and acts of mercy for others. This is like Job. Job 29, uh, verses 14 to 17, Job says... I put on righteousness like a robe. Okay, Just think of getting dressed in the morning. You put on your clothes, but Joseph is saying, I put on righteousness. It's what I wear. It's what I do. It's who I am. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. And now he's going to tell you how he behaved and acted in righteousness. He says... I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. And I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know and broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. You see what Job is saying that he, he does? What does righteousness means? It means he has a view to the circumstances of his neighbor. Who will stand forward for the needy, for the downtrodden and the weak who are being abused uh, by people in positions of power? Well, Job said, I'll step in. You're blind, I will lead you. You're lame, I will carry you. If you are unjustly brought into court, about to be crushed by the fangs of your adversary, I will step in and speak on your behalf. He didn't have to do it. He just desired to do it. Self-sacrifice and acts of mercy were his righteousness. Or we could define uh, righteous conduct um, as Bruce Walkie does the righteous will disadvantage themselves to advantage others, while the wicked will disadvantage others to advantage themselves. You see this way of life, the righteous and the upright life in Psalm 112. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. They are gracious and merciful and righteous It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice, and the righteous will never be moved. They will be remembered forever. They are not afraid of bad news. That's why Noah wasn't afraid when he got the news about the coming judgment. They're not afraid of bad news. Their hearts are firm, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are steady. They will not be afraid until they look with triumph on their adversaries. They have distributed freely. They are generous, they have given to the poor, and their righteousness endures forever. So how did Noah exemplify his righteous conduct? He spent 120 years, likely, building an ark for the benefit of his family and really to benefit the future of mankind and for the animals that would be gathered to him who could not save themselves but needed a righteous man to help save them. By the way, (laughs) a righteous person will have regard for the life of his animals. That's Proverbs chapter 12, verse 10. Your animals should be better off because you're a righteous person. Well, what Noah did took incredible effort, incredible resolve. It makes me think of the hymn we sung today, The Outset. Take my life. I consecrate it to you. Okay. He had incredible resolve because he was doing this all surrounded by corrupt and violent men. You know, it's one thing to obey God without opposition. It's quite another to be faithful when the whole world is set against you and everything you believe and everything you're doing in faith. I suspect Noah suffered endless mocking and ridicule. You can't hide something as big as building an ark can't hide that from your neighbors. Imagine how they ridiculed him when they heard the news that he was building an ark to escape a coming cataclysmic flood, something that had never been seen or heard of before in the world. But in the face of the opposition, Peter says of Noah, 2 Peter 2.5, Noah was a herald of righteousness in his days. He says this, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Well, quickly, let's think about being blameless. How was Noah blameless in his days? I I think it's helpful to to think uh, and know that the word blameless literally means to be whole and complete. I get this again from Dr. Bruce Walkie. This literally means whole and complete, signifying wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship. He says the pairing of blameless and righteous suggests Noah was wholly committed to righteousness, giving his contemporaries no excuse to criticize his conduct. He says blameless denotes to abstain from sin, but not the absence of it. Because we all sin, right? Right? We all fall short of the glory of God, but it was Noah's desire to wholeheartedly live a righteous life. This, the writer in Psalm 109 described this well. This is our call to worship. Blessed are those who weigh His blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with their whole heart. Also, who do no wrong but walk in His ways. He says, "You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently." And then he prays, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Well, all that could be said of Noah's desire to walk blameless before the Lord. We gain an even uh, deeper appreciation of Noah's character in the midst of a violent generation when we read Proverbs 29, verse 10, which says, bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and who seek to... The life of the upright. Noah lived in the midst of not only corruption and violence, but of bloodthirsty men who hated his righteousness. Darkness always hates the light. He was righteous and blameless in a dangerous time when to walk uprightly in faith and obedience was to put your life on the line for the Lord. So, how did Noah accomplish all that he did? building the ark, gathering food, herding the animals amid corrupts and violent men? And the answer is, by the strength and protection given by the Lord. Psalm 18, verses 31 to 35, speak of both things, strength and protection. For who is God, it says, but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. And you have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me. So all through the days of building the ark amidst the violence, the corruption, the mocking, the threats, God strengthened Noah and he protected him as a shield. So let's review some of the lessons we can learn from Noah about being righteous and blameless in a fallen world. First, the Lord gives favor to such people, favor that brings a way forward and through the difficult times, even surrounded by fierce opposition. Second, righteous conduct springs from the righteousness that comes by faith. Third, God deals with the righteous and blameless in kind. This is again from Psalm 18. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. He says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. God returns in kind to the righteous and the blameless. He deals mercifully with us and wholeheartedly with us. Fourth, the Lord equips and gives strength to those who desire to walk blamelessly before him. Well, lastly, I think we can sum up the life of favor with the Lord, of righteous and blameless character as the outcome of the way who walk with God. They have that supernatural and intimate fellowship with the Lord that the world does not have. Enoch walked with God and then he was not, for the Lord took him. Noah walked with God, and then God saved him when the flood came. And so this morning we have thought about two words, righteousness, blameless, also now walking. The book of Proverbs puts it in a bit different language. It uses the language of love and faithfulness. This is from Proverbs 3, verses 3 to 4. The instruction of wisdom says this, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. You do that, it says, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So may we be a people who walk with God in steadfast love and faithfulness, bearing the fruit of righteousness and a blameless life and finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. That was where I was going to end the sermon as I went to bed last night. But it's not where I'm ending it now. Because in the night I awoke, as I often do at night, being 61, and I thought, I can't end there because I am to preach Christ and Him crucified. So let me finish there know that the life of the blameless and the righteous begins and ends with Christ. He is the greater Noah who gives true rest for our souls. Remember his words, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is also the ark of our salvation. In Noah's day, to escape the wrath of God, you had to be in the ark. Today, we flee the wrath to come by being in Christ. So here are Christ's words from Matthew 24. This concerns his coming again. He says, But the coming, or concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father knows. For as were the days of Noah, he says, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will it be, he says, the coming of the Son of Man. My word to you today is do not be caught unaware Come to Christ. Be found in Him. Flee the wrath that come. You will only flee it and find refuge in Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. So we'll end there. Do not be caught unaware, but flee to Him and then abide in Christ.